Welcome back to Beat Seeker. I'm your host, Matt McButter. In each episode, we explore the shifting world of music with world-renowned experts and artists to take you deep, deep inside the fascinating and changing world of music technology and music discovery. And I'm your host, Mike Weider, reminding you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating if you like the episode. You can visit our website at beatseeker.fm where you'll find plenty of rabbit holes with extra content to dive into, guest backgrounds, and even a playlist with music recommendations from each of our guest episodes. Also, Beatseeker swag. You can stay current and talk to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at BeatseekerPod. The connection between music and human beings runs deeper than you might think. Humans are innately musical beings, and our relationship with music has been deeply intertwined since Homo sapiens first emerged. Our guest today is Michael Spitzer, who boldly makes the case that music is the most important thing we ever did, and is in fact a fundamental part of what makes us human. Michael is a British musicologist and professor of music at the University of Liverpool. He is the author of four books, including his most recent, The Musical Human, A History of Life on Earth. The book is the first big history of music, a colossal history spanning cultures, time, and space to explore the vibrant relationship between music and the human species. He joins us from Liverpool, England. Michael, thanks so much for joining us on BeatSeeker. It's my pleasure. Michael, you once remarked that if you were born in Beethoven's time, you'd be lucky if you heard a symphony once in your lifetime. Now music is as common as running water and we're drowning in music. In fact, if we went back in time only 50 years ago, the idea that you could listen to the world's recorded works from a computer in your pocket would have seemed like science fiction. Clearly, our tools have evolved significantly in a short period of of, of time. But we're especially excited to have you on the show because, well, this podcast explores these relatively recent technologies like the internet and streaming and algorithms and AI Humans are innately musical beings, and how we experience music has been changing over thousands of years, long before these modern technologies. The way we experience music has changed fundamentally with different developments in our history, and we'd like to talk to you about those today. So maybe could you take us back to, uh, you know, really early times, like our hunter-gatherer ancestors? What would the musical experience look like to to hunter-gatherers? The oldest instrument we have is a hunter-gatherer instrument. It's a flute discovered in a South German cave called the Herlefels, and it's dated 40,000 years ago in the Ice Age. The thing about hunter-gatherers, they traveled light. They didn't carry grand pianos. They they carried very (laughs) small and portable instruments and they could have the, used an ipod or something sense. like that yeah they, they, <laughs> they, they could but the flute when you see it in the museum in germany is ever so so tiny mm-hmm. it's eminently portable and also because they're traveling they have no sense of fixed place or ritual and we associate this may surprise you we associate the idea of a piece of music which can be repeated or ritualized with farming and once farming kicks off about 12,000 years ago in, uh, in the Fertile Crescent, people uh, dig down roots and they follow the circle of life, the circle of the seasons, the circle of stars, and they repeat things and they hand them down to their children. That wasn't the case for hunter-gatherers. Rather, it was more like a game 
Music was like jogging or running. It's an activity. It wasn't a thing. And today, we tend to objectify music as things, be they shellac records, CDs, playlists. We think of this music as an object. It's actually not. It's an activity. Mm. It's what we do. It's participatory. Um, but hunter-gatherers... Uh, the fleet was embedded in a whole culture of, and we can look at contemporary hunter-gatherer people such as the uh, pygmies of, of Cameroon or the Inuits of North America and extrapolate back what they might have been like in the ice I was age. about to ask you, how do we know all of this? To be true, I guess we could we find the artifacts, we find the 40,000-year-old uh, bone flute, but in terms of how people experience music, how 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 have how have um, anthropologists and historians reconstructed that? Well, culture is always changing, changing, but in some ways it it doesn't. And because hunter gatherer peoples in very different environments, from the tundra to the uh, rainforests or the deserts of Australia, there's a common core. There's a survival of a common denominator. And these commonalities suggest that things were pretty much the same 40,000 years ago. What were these commonalities? Well, portability. They carried things. They tended not to use strings, which were discovered with farming mm. 12,000 years ago, or indeed no met there was no metal. Uh, discovered in the in the Bronze Era, oh, rather sure. instruments were bone or they were lithic, made of stone. Um, they were highly inter intertwined with the landscape and with nature and with the spirit world through sh uh, shamanism and spirit travel. And all these features are present in 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 modern hunter gatherers, and we can surmise with a fair degree of certainty it was also the case forty thousand years ago. So, so then, so it seems like there's an inflection point. Um, you, you were saying when, when we moved as a species to to farming and kind of laid down roots. Um, so, I, I mean, it, it certainly makes sense that now they could have heavier instruments or somewhat heavier instruments, right? Because you you don't have to carry them around all the time. You're sort of like located in one place. And what other changes did um, you know did farming bring about in in terms of how music was created and experienced? As I mentioned, um, the circle of life. Mm -hmm. uh, um, people are highly involved with animals and with agriculture, which is seasonal. Um, and every season has its music. There's a rhythm of of um, of culture. Uh, we see that in the church. If yeah, Bach cantatas, actually, so Bach writes a different kind of cantata, which is a, a piece of choral music for every Sunday of the church calendar. Um, so religion, um, there, there's a the church calendar flows from the agricultural calendar. The I oldest see. known settlement we have, uh, the oldest town in the world, is Katalhuyuk in in uh, Turkey. That's about nine thousand years uh, old. It's um, essentially a human beehive. It's a, it's 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 hundreds of little boxes or or, or little houses. Um, all stacked on top of each other. Uh, and this bespeaks a standardization principle. Um, uh, life becomes standardized into, into boxes. Also, music becomes domesticated. In each box, we see a hearth, and above the hearth is a fresco or a plaster painting of musicians. Mm. 
and the dancing around bulls, which are fertility symbols, and they're playing not exactly violins, but the progenitor of the violin, which is the African hunting bow. So violins come from hunting bows, and we see these people dancing with bows and arrows or playing them also also with drums. Hmm. Oh, that's I so never, cool. I never knew that, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so at some point, we more and more were, were moving into towns and cities. Um, what impact did that have on music technology or even the role of music and how we experienced it? Um, people discover metal. They create gongs and bells, which are far too heavy to carry. They're stationary and they're loud. When you bring people together, music gets louder. It has to compete in the urban setting. And also music begins to glorify power, the aristocrats and the church. What the church does, it validates the aristocrats. It says power is written in the stars. And they utilize music as a handmaiden to justify power. And that stays the same through the royal courts of Europe, how music is deployed uh, under Elizabeth I or King Henry VIII is the same as he was. Two thousand years ago, hmm. yeah, you can you you can picture you know or you know in even just in historical films like the trumpets and the horns kind of and the, all that pomp and circumstance, right? Like heralding the you know you can picture it at a, like a coronation or something like that, and it adds some gravitas, I guess, to these ceremonies and to these power structures. Yes, and it makes music rather ambiguous because it it sort of whitewashes power. Um, the music might be beautiful, but it's it's um, you know it's cosmetic. It's it's sanitizing a lot of dubious practices, right? And you mentioned as well, you know, at, in Matt's introduction there about the fact that you know many people would not have experienced concerts, um, but at, at some point, um, concerts and leisure activities like that become more common. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how and when that was introduced and how that changed things? Uh, people didn't have leisure. Um, most people had a very difficult life of working in the fields. Um, they sang and they played, so music was interwoven into life, into work. The idea of separating music from life is a very modern invention. Mm. It's outrageous to think that we could have the, the leisure to sit back and enjoy <laughs> music. It's a middle-class pastime, which really only blossoms in the 18th century in Europe with the rise of our middle class. So the idea of a concert where you paid money to sit there and watch other people play for you is a very, it's a very recent invention. Right, right. And I guess the idea as well that if you think about how we experience music today, most of our listening is, you know, these days people putting on uh, AirPods or some headphones and listening to yeah. it by themselves. And, and, and I'm, you know, clearly that technology didn't exist, but, you know, when, when, what was the musical experience like in, in those eras? It must have been more of a, a collective experience rather yeah. than a personal one. This is the extraordinary fact that um, throughout most times and in all places, music was participatory. People participated. There was no line between those who made the music and those who enjoyed it. They were the same crowd. And you can go right back, if you like, to the apes, um, you know, seven million years ago. And there's one theory that music emerges from vocal grooming. So apes groomed each other uh, with their hands um, to keep the pack together. 
and they gradually would substitute their voices and mm. they would touch people. It's not a metaphor of being touched by music. And by touching people with uh, sound, you can broadcast the sound to a far greater group, and that leads to society growing. So vocal grooming and, the, and then music is at the heart of the growth of society and culture. Now, um, today it's very different. The astounding reality is that most of us, I think, consume music passively as can, um, through our earpods. Um, we sit there and we listen. Very few of us uh, have the opportunity to to, to make music. I think that's a slight red herring because I don't know about you, but when I'm listening to music, I'm plugged into a social network because um, songs are part of a community of gestures and cliches and they're all highly social. So we're sharing a lot through, right. through, through listening. Also, if you're listening and not just hearing, hearing as passive listening is, can be and should be an active practice. You're almost orally reimagining the music in your heads you're mm -hmm. you're mentally re restructuring the sounds in your minds yeah. and that is active in its own way in a very modern way mm. but you i think you talk about this a little bit in your book that um as children we participate in sing and that's extremely common is that we are yeah. both uh, yeah. creators of music and listeners but at some point there's that uh, distinction then where, and separation where we just turn into the vast majority of us just turn into listeners and there's these very small number of creators that are, are actually creating content uh, creating creating music do you, do you think that that was different back you know you know in thousands of years ago we all uh, have the innate capacity to be musicians and we see that in the um a duet which is sung between a mother and her infant uh, called infant directed um, uh, language or motherese it's a duet of um, laughs and coos and strokes and smiles which is music it's actually musical it then bifurcates or branches into what we call uh, instrumental music or song on the one hand or and language on the other um, and that and it's also the template for for the way the interactive way that uh, musicians in a jazz band or a string quartet would interact with each other. But that propensity is taught out of us through the Western educational system. There's a hiatus of about forty years between about the age of twenty and then retirement age, where life just gets in the way. We put away our laptops or our guitars and we get on with life with work. And then we pick the guitar back up again when we're 65, if we're lucky. <laughs> it's a little harder at that stage if, if you haven't been practicing a little bit. But yeah, I see your point in that uh, it's back to that, you know, we consider this a leisure activity versus something something else. You, um, I guess the emergence of the professional musician, at what point did that become more more common and that there were professional composers and, and musicians that we would go, uh, that, that were producing most of this content? Well, actually, this may sound counterintuitive, but if you go back to that cave in Germany 40,000 years ago, you know, to to give leisure to a person to spend hundreds of hours carving a flute and not doing a useful job such as hunting uh, a mammoth or building a fire, that 
bespeaks a lot of specialization that this person was to all intents and purposes already a professional musician. Of course, literally, we can look forward to the 19th century with people like in Europe, Franz Liszt and Paganini, who were virtuosos of the violin and the piano, um, a bit like modern day rock stars who could earn their living from the revenue from public concerts, uh, which wasn't the case. Mozart starved. He couldn't make a living out of it. But Liszt was a very wealthy man. Hmm. Hmm. And you, you mentioned in your book a little bit about the uh, invention of staff notation and the implications that that had on how, you know music. Can you talk a little bit about that? When when was the uh, the um, staff notation created, and and what what changes did that have on our musical history? Yeah, I argue that the West's own path, which is distinct from the pathway trodden in China, in in India, in Africa, the Western path towards globalization and colonization begins with one invention, the invention of staff notation, which is the way we write music on five lines. And it was invented by a monk in Italy called Guido Darezzo about a thousand years ago as essentially an arm of control. And the controls of the empire of Christendom, the Pope. And just imagine you have um, soldiers patrolling the border of the Carolingian Empire, where I used to live in northern England, near Hadrian's Wall, mm -hmm. the border between Scotland and England. If you want to um, assure that the monasteries in Hexham, shall we say, are literally singing from the same hymn sheet, as those in the Vatican. What used to be the case around 900 AD, you would send soldiers and monks 3,000 miles to, to Scotland to patrol it. Now, by writing music down on a page, it's a lot cheaper. You simply sent the manuscript to, to Durham or to Hexham, and that assured people sang the official hymns from the Vatican. And it's a way of binding binding the whole empire together through song. It's a way of, of unifying Christendom through melody, through Gregorian chants. And mm. then, once um, colonialism kicks in around the 16th century and Cortes lands in Mexico and commits genocide towards the Aztecs, uh, Cortes doesn't just bring cannons and horses, he also brings on his ships manuscripts of Spanish polyphony. And he teaches the Aztecs to sing European polyphony. And there's an extraordinarily fast rate of change. So 1519, where Cortes lands, he kills all the Aztec music. Then 10 years later in Mexico Cathedral, we have on record the fact that Aztec Indians are singing Mexican polyphony in Spanish. Mm, wow. It's and a music colonialism. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and um, it kind of begs the question, who owns this music? Is it the Spanish or is it now the Indians? It's a bit like the, you know, the circulation of the Spanish language across the world or the English language or cricket or football or indeed IT or civilization. Mm. Yeah. In the end, who owns it? Everybody owns it. Mm -hmm. That's really fascinating the way, you know, it, it's really made me think about music as a kind of mechanism of social cohesion. Dating, yeah. you know, back to, you know, even how you were saying, you know, the apes grooming themselves 
will you then use music to, or you know, or vo- voice or whatever yeah. sound yeah. as a as a social cohesion mechanism. Yeah. yeah. And then you know, you, doing it through the church and also through you know um, military domination, but also even I, I mean, I even think of like you know teenagers when I was growing up. The way that you would sort of identify your group was the music that you listen to. And it still happens, you know, to this day, not just music in general, but specific genre of music as a sort of mechanism for keeping, you know, for identifying cultural a particular unity. group. Yeah. yeah, cultural unity. Yeah. And whilst I say in my book, it's a very human thing to do, birds also do that. The function of birdsong is to define the species and to tell the other birds, this is who I am. Get off, get off my tree. So birdsong um, is used, well, mating through sexual selection um, to threaten rival males, but also to define a territory and define a species. And in all four respects, we're exactly the same. We use music for love, music for, for war. We define home. We, we, we use music to, to set us a, a mood in our, in our homes and we use it to, to, to tell people, who we are. Are we a Taylor Swift fan or are we a Beyonce fan? Are we into hip hop or electronica? And the kids I teach at Liverpool, um, I teach the majority of my students are popular music specialists. They tend to fall into niches. They are experts in a particular genre. It's rare to find a student who likes more than two or three genres. It's quite interesting. Hmm. Hmm. I Spotify told me I am one of those people. I, I they called me in with my <laughs> Spotify rap. They they called me an adventurer because I explored fifty eight different genres in twenty twenty two. Some of them probably because of this podcast, but but that's besides yeah. the point. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So so uh, Michael, you have a really unique perspective on the history of music, but with that viewpoint, we're wondering if you could also share your thoughts on where you think we're headed and what what may might come next in the evolution of our music experience. It's interesting, I've just come back from apparently what is the world's most famous electronica festival. It's called the Unsound Festival in Krakow in in Poland. Hmm. And um, everybody there was super cool, super young in their 20s and all into experimental electronica. And uh, some things have changed. So what people are into now is instant gratification. You know, those beats, incredible, it's very visceral. And it would seem to be very different from nature. But if you're standing there in, in, in the bubble and you feel the breeze from those bass notes blowing through your hair or through your chest, this is still nature. It's still visceral. It's still about bass and it's, it's, it's grounded. And in, in a paradoxical way, um, we've got back to nature through the back route of technology. I think we remained tethered or anchored to emotions is one reason why I don't think IT will ever simulate creativity properly. There won't be a a properly uh, creative uh, um, uh, IT because what makes music human is our emotions, which are primeval. It goes back to reptiles and to mammals. Um, We're mortal. We're... uh, uh, immersed in the sea of time. We know when we're going to die yeah. and we have a nostalgia for when we were children. We have this horizon of time. <laughs> and I think we'll always 
kind of circle the plug hole of our emotions in this way. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you think the, you know, the, the internet is, you know, we, we've lived with this, you know, for a few decades now, but it's a relatively new invention. How do you think the internet has really changed the music experience and, and where we might head with it? It's kind of brought back that connectivity, the interconnectivity, uh, where we were all in it together. It's brought back participatory culture in an interesting way. Um, and this dawned on us for many of us during lockdown under COVID, where people were sharing a lot of music on the internet or, or YouTube. It democratized music. It took music away from musicians and gave it back to the people. Um, I have my um, reservations. So um, playlists atomize the integrity of the album. I'm old-fashioned. I like to think of albums having a narrative. Um, people just mash it all up now. Al although I gather it's changing again where the, um, students or kids have two ways of listening to music. One is digitized. The other is on vinyl. And they will go back to the rooms and listen to the same music, but seriously through vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> also, um, they're much more beholden to curators or DJs, people who they, they arrogate authority to choose the order of tracks or the selection of tracks to somebody they empower. And that's a re return through the back door of, of authority. Mm -hmm. um, uh, a respected figure. Um, and that's quite interesting to me that we need someone to tell us what to listen to and the order in which to listen to it. Yeah. Right. Even if that somebody is an algorithm, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So, yeah. so, Michael, you're not worried about, uh, you know, last week we had this announcement of chat, GP, GPT, and this amazing AI technology for creating text, uh, you know, through uh, automated chat, chatbots. Um, the same has been done for images. Um, nobody has created a chat GPT for music yet, but you've got to think that someone will attempt this. Um, but it sounds like your viewpoint is that machines will never replicate the, the human experience. Well, there's plenty of, it's been done before. Uh, people suspect that they are, that there are bots behind a lot of Spotify's more generic playlists. The, look, it's easy to make adequate music. That's not a, it's not a mystery. It's hard to make good music. And hopefully we'll maintain an ability to discern the difference between adequate and good. All right. Well, that's a great segue. We like to ask our guests if they have a music recommendation. So something not adequate. Can you recommend something that is good music? And we'll put it on our, on our guest picks playlist. Yeah, look, if you scratch the surface, I, I'm an old fashioned, a very old fashioned musicologist. And um, I don't think I'm preaching to the choir when I recommend a very old fashioned piece that give it a try. It's an opera by Mozart, the, the, the last one he wrote called The Magic Flute, um, which is, you know, it's my favorite piece of music. It's actually the first opera that I ever saw um, live. My mom is a big opera, bu opera buff and uh, took me to. Um, all the Mozart and Pacini and stuff when I was a kid. Yeah. So the Magic Flute was was actually my my uh, my introduction to uh, to opera. Yeah. Um, beautiful piece. We'll put that on for sure. And and lastly, if if our listeners want to uh, you know follow you or your work, uh, where's where's the best place for them to go? 
get get my books on Amazon or follow me on my university webpage, University of Liverpool. Okay, great. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, guest today is uh, Michael Spitzer. The book, uh, his most recent book is The Musical Human, A History of Life on Earth. Michael, thanks so much for being with us today. It was a really fascinating conversation. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Beat Seeker with your hosts, Matt McButter and Mike Wider. If you like the show, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. While you're there, leave us a rating and a comment and share it with your friends and colleagues. If you want to dig deeper into this content, visit BeatSeeker.fm. That's B-E-A-T Seeker.fm. Interact with us on social media at BeatSeekerPod. BeatSeeker is recorded in the Devil Lake Studios and the Tunnel Under Arundel. The show is produced by Matt McButter, Mike Wider, and Kate McCartney. Thanks for tuning in and keep seeking.